0: Welcome to the Turn On Tune In series of podcasts, presented by Fab and Production Base, where we get to hear from the TV industry's best creative talent and learn the secrets and stories behind some of the most successful shows in recent years. In this episode, recorded at the H Club in Covent Garden, Baron Money talks to Jamie Campbell creative director of Eleven Film, about his hit Netflix show, Sex Education.
1: Maybe if we can start just by casting your mind back right to the beginning, and you could tell us about the sort of genesis of the project, how it, how it started, where did the idea for Sex Education come from? So we developed it,
0: like we do with many of our ideas, in-house, and we had a one page of a description of what the idea was and some of the characters and then we went out to a couple of writers to see what their take on the material would be and we were very fortunate that Laurie Nunn who we'd read one spec script of and had really liked responded very strongly to it and very quickly expanded the world and the vision of it. That was probably about four years before it was greenlit so there was quite a long kind of process between the point at which Laurie came onto it and then the point at which Netflix greenlit it, the first episode script took a, a year or so to get to the sort of second or third draft, and then there were notes, and then we were looking for a bro- for the right fit of broadcaster for it for about two years after that as well. So it was it was a fairly long
1: gestation process. Yeah. How did it evolve over that period? Did you did you have a very firm idea of what it was at the start, and did looking for different broadcasters change what the show was going to be?
0: It did in a way, I and mean, we started out um, developing it for another broadcaster, not for Netflix. And then as quite often happens in that development process, the commissioner who liked it left the broadcaster, and um, so it then came back into turnaround to us. And then it's, it's quite a defining moment that when, the, when a project comes back into turnaround to you as a producer, because you've got to work out whether you like it enough to try and sell it and persuade someone else that it's, it's worth making. So I think I went around 20 to 30 broadcasters in different parts of the world. There was a really good commissioner called Robert Prince at MTV in the States who said this is the best script i read in two years. Would Love to make this and we can offer $100,000 an episode. And um, <laughs> it just wasn't enough. So was, uh, although they were very sort of enthusiastic about it, we couldn't make it with them. There was a broadcaster in Australia who was really excited about it, but again, they weren't quite sure from a tonal point of view whether it could work for them. And there was a commissioner, we'd, I'd actually taken it to Netflix as well, and they'd passed on it. There's a sort of unwritten rule that you shouldn't really take a show back into the broadcaster that's already passed on it until you've let a certain amount of time elapse. But there was a new commissioner that arrived at Netflix called Alex Sapot, and she was really tasked with going back and forth between LA and London and trying to find shows that might originate in, in the UK but could have a kind of global reach. And so uh, I met her and I thought she might like it and asked her to read the script and she responded very, very strongly to it. I don't think I told her that we'd already taken it to Netflix <laughs> and that they'd, that they'd passed. So uh, we just let that sit a little bit and then she took it back internally and said, this looks really interesting. We were really fortunate that at the moment that she changed her job title to a commissioner of global originals for Netflix, it was the first thing that she wanted to commission. So there was a lot of serendipity in that process. And as I say, it took a long time, but ultimately, Alex as the commissioner and Netflix as the broadcaster was an incredible fit because they understood that there was something very authorially strong in it, but it had to be handled in a certain way. And I'm glad I ended up at Netflix because I think if it had been another broadcaster, it would have turned out really quite radically different.
1: In terms of the, the the next step, once once you've got Netflix interested in the idea and 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 they've commissioned the series, is casting the next step, the next thing that you were sorting out with there?
0: There was a slight step in between, this, which is where, and by the way, most broadcasters don't do this. It's where you sort of celebrate the fact that you've the show's been greenlit and and Netflix say. I won't go into too much detail, but they do this quite sort of nice thing where they get you on the phone and they actually tell you it's green lit, and you have a moment where you all just enjoy that moment. Which sounds like such an obvious thing to do, doesn't it? But it, it actually doesn't happen. <laughs> usually, it, usually there is a moment where you're told that it might be commissioned and then, but you've got to make some changes and then it will, the, the moment of celebrating a green light can sometimes slip by. But with Netflix they're very good at sort of celebrating that moment. So we did have that, that quite nice beat in the process. And then, yeah, there's a, there are various things that happen in tandem at that point when they've greenlit something. You're obviously going through the process of writing the scripts, developing all of the scripts so that they're ready for pre-production. And then, yeah, casting hap- happens simultaneously. We were in a position with casting where Netflix felt it wasn't necessary to have a high-profile cast. Uh, quite, a, quite a lot of young newcomers we we knew were going to be signing up for the show and so yeah there was no pressure on us really to find big names but in that process it emerged that Netflix were also happy for us to consider people that were well known and had status and that if they were the right fit and if they got excited about them that they would pay what's known as breakage on top of the budget in order to bring them on board so very fortunate that we, we had this sort of conversation with Ben Taylor, the director, about who his ideal pick would be for, for the part of Otis. And he said, well, it would be a sort of Asa Butterfield type, ideally. And um, and then there was this sort of beat in that conversation where I think we all said, well, why don't we see if Asa Butterfield would, would consider it? And so we went out to Asa and he really responded to the script and I think that process was then quite positive because Acer's agent is also Jillian's, Gillian Anderson's agent. And I think there was a bit of excitement at the agency about the about the project. And, and then Gillian came for a meeting as well. And so that all
1: snowballed into something which turned out quite nicely. And apart from Acer and Gillian, the rest of your cast, especially your younger cast, are, are, are quite new. And I think for some of them, it's their first major role. Uh, how did you go about casting the, the young cast, I suppose.
0: Um, well, there, there is a brilliant casting director on the show called Lauren Evans, and this is the first show that Lauren had cast herself. She'd set up, she'd been working with Nina Gold for some years. was a great person to learn how to cast a show, and this was really the first show that she'd done by herself. We wanted to be quite bold in the casting process and, and find newcomers that would make an impact. Maybe this is just an obvious point. If you're casting a show where there are a lot of um, relatively new actors in it, the risk of it being disastrous are quite high. And, um, and so you want, you want um, new and young actors who are gonna be confident and who are gonna try and do their best work at the point at which they're first sort of walking on set. You know, I remember Shooty Gatwell, for example, who plays Eric, had just come from a gig at the Watermill Theatre in in Newbury, lovely theatre by the way, he was sort of walking on set, really for the first time, working out what it means to be in front of camera, how to pitch the performance, how to be still in front of camera and, you know, we were having conversations with him and a lot of the young cast in those early weeks and months about just pitching the performance where it felt right and trying to get the sort of, the gang of younger actors to gel in a way which was gonna be successful. And my, my observation of that was that, was that they were all... There, there was a kind of precociousness of that group of actors. They are all very highly skilled. And there was something quite magical that happened where they all began to do really quite excellent work in the first sort of month of the first season's shoot. And as I said, that doesn't often... That doesn't always happen. And so there was, there was clearly something going on there that was, that was quite exciting. And then I think there's another aspect to it, which is that Asa is such a mature actor and he's he's so experienced despite his age that all the younger actors were sort of looking at Acer as a as a kind of lead as an as, as an example I think and he's just brilliantly kind of confident and professional on set and so that set a really brilliant tone fundamentally for for the set overall so we've been very fortunate with the casting.
1: It's a very modern show it wears I think its diversity very lightly but it is an incredibly diverse in terms of the casting how much of that was a conscious decision and how much of it was just, if that's how things are now? It was a very, very conscious decision.
0: In fact, I don't know if anyone's measured the, the, the sort of overall diversity of the show, but I think the, the overall diversity that we were looking for on the show was probably greater than the diversity that we ended up having. And I think, it, in my experience anyway, that, that that's the only way of achieving a high level of diversity to even sort of try and exceed what you're going for and again Lauren Evans did a really superb job at just presenting a wide range of people for each of actors for each role it was a very concerted deliberate decision to try and 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 it also reflects the scripts that Laurie had written to make it feel like an inclusive show and one where people give other people the benefit of the doubt and where even if you make wrong choices the sort of world absorbs that in a way and so it's there is a there is a if you like an idyllic quality to the show, which I suppose in some ways is reflected by our attitude to casting, which is that we wanted it to feel very very inclusive, more inclusive than the
1: real world in some ways. Looking at your credit list, that's something that you did behind the scenes as well, certainly in your writers' room. You know, there's a lot of diversity in there. Yeah, the writers'
0: room for each of the seasons we've had three writers' rooms now have been quite remarkable because. The, the choices that Laurie and her team have made in terms of bringing writers into the room haven't been driven fundamentally by who the most experienced script writer is, or even necessarily who has written the the best or the the most good spec scripts, which is, for obvious reasons, usually the process that you go through when you're trying to assemble a, assemble a writer's room. The, the approach that we've taken on this show, very much driven by Laurie and her team, is to find a group of people that, in some ways, reflect the diversity of the show, irrespective of whether they're extremely experienced writers. So for season two and for season three, we've brought in a team of writers, some of whom have, they might just have one spec script. There have been writers that we've had on the show that didn't have a drama or a comedy long form spec script. Quite a few writers have not had spec scripts. That's a very unusual approach. And again, a bit like the casting of new actors on a show, it has a very high level of risk because obviously one of the you would assume that one of the prerequisites for writing a good script is that you have written a script before <laughs> there are two reasons that that sort of works really well one is that there is something else that you can bring to the to a writer's room other than just writing uh, having experience of writing which is experience of the world yourself and so you know if you came to our writers room, you'd see it's quite a, a breadth of opinion and breadth of experience and breadth of background, and that can be really positive and good, and it's definitely good for our show. And the other thing that is really important, which is the reason why that works, even though there's, a, there's sometimes a sort of experience gap, is that Laurie herself is so in control of what she's doing as the lead writer and the creator, that if, you know, if, if any of the drafts don't quite come up to scratch, she is always able to come in and, and very deftly sort of manage that. The other thing that she does that you know she 's operating at a very very high level in this respect is she does outlines for each of the episodes for all of the writers who are who are coming onto the show that that offer a level of detail and sort of complexity and thoroughness that i haven 't seen before and it 's just it 's just it 's an absolute gift if you 're a writer coming onto the show, you get this sort of lovely 10 to 15 page outline and it's I wouldn't say it writes itself that would be unfair but it, it is very very detailed beautifully structured and it's
1: just it's lovely to see. One of the most distinctive things about the show is its look and the world it creates I suppose this kind of combination of a kind of John Hughes 1980s meets a very now 2020 Britain where did that look and feel and that world come from and what was the thinking, sort of creatively the thinking behind it?
0: Well, this is where I think there is, there is, a, there is a serendipity to making a show work because most shows shouldn't work. I remember Richard Ayoade, the director and writer and actor, said that making a movie is a bit like taking a really good joke and then recording it into a dictaphone and then chopping up the element of that joke into words and then rearranging the order of the words, recording that and then splicing it all together in the right order again and hoping that it's funny. And I love that as a sort of a metaphor for filmmaking, which is exactly the way it is, which is you, you're just chopping everything up into this huge array of stuff that you're shooting out of order and then hoping that it somehow all gels and that the tone of it works and the aesthetic of it works, the script works, the actors are going to work, the direction is okay, um, and ultimately you're going to have people that edit it and put it through the post-production process and it isn't a disaster in the end. And there are so many factors that can go wrong. One of the things that I've observed in the setting up of a show is that if you can have a very, very strong vision from the earliest point, that's almost the single factor that gives you the best chance of making a show successful in the end. And on Sex Education, the script was really strong and had a very strong flavor, and was also quite heightened. And you could have done that in a a certain very contemporary way. The thing that when Ben Taylor, the lead director brought to the table when he first read it and then we first had meetings was that he identified very strongly that this was something that would fit into that kind of American tradition of high school movies and TV shows. So the John Hughes movies were very very important to him. Shows that I'm sure that we've all watched high school American TV shows series were also very sort of influential for him. And so that led to the, a conversation where we felt the way to make this and to make the heightened element of Laurie's scripts work best was to put the show in a world which was a little bit idyllic and aspirational and, you know, filmed in Wales. Because, as you know, it, summer in Wales is always really, it's always hot and the sun's always out. And, um, <laughs> and so um, that was a very, very deliberate positioning of what we saw in, in Laurie's scripts to try and create something that was almost in conflict with high school shows that we've had in the UK, which have their own brilliance, I think. But there is often a kind of aesthetic and a tone which is more about the opposite of an aspirational mood, if you know what I mean. I don't know if that's too general about the way we are as British people, but we kind of love it when things go wrong. And in drama and comedy, if you were to generalize, I would say that there there is something that we are drawn to in British filmmaking, which is about reveling in the person that sees an obstacle, tries to overcome it, and then definitely doesn't overcome it. (laughs) And, And we wanted to do something with this, where you had characters that actually loved being in the world, and the world reflected that, because the world was a lovely place to be in. And although there were nasty people in it, on the whole, you would look back at this time of your life and think that it was one of the best times of your life. Just to make a comparison with other shows like Grange Hill, I don't think, I don't think Zamo from Grange Hill was looking back at that period and thinking that was the best time of my life. And rightly so. And to generalize it as well, I think I think that is more of a kind of American approach to to drama and comedy and to, and to life, probably. The more kind of optimistic approach, the more aspirational approach. That's just the, the the route that we decided to go down. And that had quite a lot of bearing on the way that we... We approach the aesthetic of the sets, um, the way that we approach the costumes, and the world in general. As a combination of elements, in many ways, as I say, it shouldn't work, because there's also a kind of a a mixture of decades in the show. And it should, in some ways, be a kind of blancmange,
1: but it isn't. It comes out the oven slightly differently. As I was watching series two, there's a moment in possibly the penultimate episode where Otis is having his party, is that mashing up of the time and experience.
0: Well, I think there is also something about comedy, in my view, since September the 11th, where comedy has become much more self-reflexive, much more self-aware. And as a result, you end up with a lot of contemporary comedy, enjoying it because the theory of it is funny, whereas you don't necessarily laugh out loud. And, that's, and, and that comes of a, of a kind of intelligence and self-awareness in the comedy, which is less innocent than I think comedy was in the 80s and 90s before, if you like, before 9-11, where you know, a lot of those John Hughes movies were just quite happy to embarrass themselves. The characters were happy and the, the whole thing, the whole endeavor was happy to embarrass it, itself and, and be innocent and, and people would make mistakes but then recover from it and it would be okay. And I think there is a bit of an innocence about sex education which falls into that bracket where it's not frightened of embarrassing itself, if that makes any sense. It's a much more innocent show than 2020 is in some ways. And I think people respond to that because there's a kind of emotional vulnerability
1: in that which does feel quite contemporary. And then you mentioned it a few moments ago about filming in Wales and finding that location, the practicalities of that location. Tell us a bit more about that, about how, how did you end up in Wales and what was it like when you were there? Get the green lights
0: and then Laurie and the team start writing the show, episodes beyond episode one, start the casting process, and then you start looking for locations. And we knew that we wanted a big school-type building that would not be falling down, that would be usable, that we could have potentially for two or three or four years that was also near people that could be crew. And we probably found four or five different conceivable locations across the UK. And the first one that we saw was the one that's in the show, which is near Newport, and it just had amazing qualities to it. But we d- uh, the, the process of then sort of eliminating all the other options took about two or three months. And it's quite a good reflection of the way Netflix approached their process in the sort of pre-production period, which is that there was this crazy building in Aldermaston in Reading, which I think I never quite got to the bottom of, but I think it's a sort of military intelligence unit from the po- from the 70s, which is now sort of closed down. It's this amazing brutalist building next to a lake and the sort of huge front doors, which are kind of plated in gold, and then in this estate, which I guess is about 100 acres or something, there is just a house that happens to be there, which is this very kind of nice grand house, which we thought could be Amy's house in the show. So we were thinking, well, maybe we would film the party for episode two of series one there. And then we had this vision of Jackson being a rower and rowing on this amazing lake. And, and then this incredible weird school with the big gold front, gold-plated entrance. Anyway, so it's in Aldermaston, which uh, I don't know if you've been there, but it's, that's near Reading. And there basically isn't any film crew, TV crew, in Reading or Aldermaston, And so to set up, to shoot there, was going to co- cost a lot more money than any of the other um, places that we were looking at. But we did like the aesthetic of it and thought it could be amazing. And so we had a conversation with Netflix about whether they would consider adding a bit to the budget to make that conceivable for us. And the truth is that I would say most broadcasters would say, listen, if you've got the, a good option in Wales, there's, a, there's also a, a sort of um, incentive, financial incentive to go to Wales, the Welsh Government offer an incentive, and, and it's good, it's good enough, we're not gonna pay any more money for you to go to this crazy gold plated building in and, um But there was a long conversation about, it took about a month I would say, going back and forth, about whether we would go to and, and and ultimately whether the budget would go up a lot because of that. And we ended up making the choice which was a good one in the end that the downside of being so isolated at this other location um, even though we thought it was aesthetically very interesting um, yeah that, that was outweighed by going to Wales which had its own thing going for it in this particular location which was a university campus which we could con- control um, had some amazing features like a huge sports hall where we, we ended up building various sets um, And and then there was another factor which in some ways is is the most important factor, which is that we met this location manager um who had worked in and around Cardiff and Newport in that area for for many years called midge Ferguson and um so Ben and I around this time met Midge off the train in in Newport and he took us to some locations um around newport and then Ben said well." what radius do you usually go to when you're looking for locations around Cardiff? And he said, oh, probably 15, 20 miles. And Ben said, well, if you went 25 or 30 miles outside, what would happen? And Mitch got very excited and said, well, there are some pretty amazing places if you go 25 or 30 miles. So we then started making journeys like 25 to 30 miles outside Cardiff or Newport. And what we found was suddenly you were in these incredible, epic, rural locations like you're in sort of rural Canada or somewhere. Um, Huge cliffs and um, beautiful rivers and these crazy uh, uh, sort of architecturally really interesting houses on the sides of valleys Um, like the one where we ended up filming Jean's house which turns out that it was imported like slat of wood by slat of wood from Scandinavia I think from northern Sweden in like 1910. And you don't find that 15 miles from Cardiff you find it 30 miles from Cardiff. And, and so um, Midge began showing us these locations, which were very exciting. When you're, when you're sort of piecing together what the aesthetic of the show is going to be like, the, location is such an, the locations are such a sort of important factor. And he just was unveiling a series of absolute gems. How long are your shoots? So this year we're going to shoot
1: from the beginning of May to the end of September. So... Or mid-September, so four and a half months. It's in the title. Sex is obviously a big thing in the show, and the show kind of combines, it has a kind of unique combination of explicit sex, well at least explicit talking about sex, certainly, a sex-positive attitude, and then the challenge of executing that with a young cast. Could you tell us a bit more about that, and how you, I suppose, creatively intention of that, and then the practical realities of, of making that happen? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I
0: immediately loved about episode one of series one in Laurie's script was the opening scene between Adam and Amy and the kind of the raw honesty and uh, just that there's something about how direct Amy is with Adam and and how sort of direct the sexual content is and how frank it is that I think is really, really arresting and so, I don't know if anyone recalls episode one from series one, but there's actually quite a lot of sort of sexual content to deal with in that Adam has a problem in bed where he's um, not sure whether he can keep going and he's not and he's worried about the size. And so, there was a question about how we were gonna film that, um, those various scenes. And so, we we had a kind of spectrum in our minds between something in terms of TV comedy drama that had been relatively recent, like Girls, which handled sex in a particular way, in a very frank and honest way, and a lot of nudity and a lot of full-frontal nudity, a lot of rear nudity. And then at the other end of the scale, you know, the, the John Hughes movies, which are very innocent in that sense and don't have much sex in them. And then other shows that we could think of where, you know, Skins was a reference for us in the sense that there are some sex scenes in Skins where you might expect the characters to take their clothes off because often that's what you do when you have sex, but they tended to keep their clothes on. And so there was a, we, there was a lot a lot of conversation about um, how do we choreograph the sex scenes, how do we do it in a way which will work for the younger actors, and what degree of frankness and nudity are we gonna, are we gonna go for? I mean, weirdly, that first scene is by some distance the most explicit scene in all of the series, in terms of its frankness and nudity. So it's not particularly representative, but it is quite representative of the frankness of the show overall. So I think it was a good thing to do. There was that conversation at first, which is where are we gonna pitch the sex and the, the depiction of the sex overall? And then in terms of the practice of it and how we would actually do that on set, early on, we identified someone who was just sort of starting to come up with the theory of how you can choreograph sex on set in a way which is which feels like it's from 2018 or 19 rather than 1818 18 or 19 she's called Ita O'Brien and we met her and she was really just sort of trying to find a methodology and we were one of the first people that she spoke to and it felt like there was something interesting to do there particularly with a young cast where we could find a slightly different way of doing things than TV shows had done in the past And that's been an incredibly positive process because she can work side by side quite seamlessly with our directors. And the the, the sort of main benefit that I see that she brings is that there is a kind of default step in the process where, and this is going to just sound so obvious as a part of a process, but it hasn't really happened in TV and films until really the last five five or so years. There's a step in the process where the actor might feel absolutely able to say, I want to talk about this. So it's just a moment where you can talk about the, the parameters that you're gonna set in, in this intimate scene. And so let's say there are two of you in that, in that intimate scene. Each of you know what the other person is expecting. And each of, each of you has sort of given a level of permission for what the other person can do to you in that scene. And that's, again, it sounds so obvious if you and I were doing a scene with a knife, we would rehearse it, and in that rehearsal, at some point, I would say, "Well, this is what I'm going to do with the knife," and you would say, "Please don't stab me with it." And uh, probably, and then I would tend to uh, tend to sort of conform to that. I wouldn't stab you in the scene, but uh, um, probably. Uh, but on the whole, um, with with sex scenes, that level of conversation has not existed. So there would be a sort of fluidity in the past about whether an actor might feel able to put their hands on parts of the other person's body which hadn't been discussed in advance. And understandably that has the potential to make people feel very unsafe. So yeah, so just going back to the point of the intimacy coordinator, it creates a step where the actors that are going to be in the scene can say, okay, well here are the parameters and here's what I'm expecting and here's what I give permission for. And then it's a pretty you know, logical and, and relatively quick process. And that leaves the actual director of the show to then be able to get on with the scene in a way where everyone feels comfortable and um, and, and safe. And it doesn't restrict you at all. You can still <laughs> you do whatever you want as long as you're going to agree with what you're going to do. The first scene of episode one is a great example of that. Amy Lou, and Connor discussed that scene in a lot of detail, gave each other permission for what they were going to do, and then
1: that's how it unfolded. And then, just to come on to that other word that's in the title, which is the education bit. You know, one thing that happens in the series is that, as the characters come across sexual issues or sexual issues are discussed, there, there's a certain amount of information that's given over. It has a level of public service to it. That if you were a viewer watching at home and you wanted to know about vagismus or some, you know, some relatively medical. <laughs> I mean, sexual term. The character will explain it, and there is explanation that comes out as it goes along. Was that something that you decided you wanted from the start? The idea of the show educating you about sex.
0: Well, it was always part of Laurie's characterization of of Otis, because Otis Otis's superpower essentially is that he has that encyclopedic knowledge on tap from having been raised by Gene, and. That is part of the quite heightened conceit of the, of the show, which is that he's able to dis- dispense advice. In a way, it goes back to that innocence point, which is it was always very innocent in the scripts. In other shows, Otis would just be laughed out of the room every time he starts talking like that in that innocent but yet factual and yet educational way. And our show, I think, has the kind of elasticity and innocence in that sense to allow a character to say those things without being shamed or ridiculed. Sometimes he does get shamed, shamed or ridiculed for the way that he is or the way that he speaks or the way that he gives advice, but never to the extent that he can't come back from that.
1: Above and beyond the effect of that character and story, did you feel that what you wanted to do was to educate people and to provide more information about sex?
0: That was never a conversation. I think that's a byproduct of the way that the show is. There was a lot of conversation, um, and it's very intrinsic to the show, about subverting cliches about particular high school characters and finding different ways to surprising ways to present those sort of stock characters if you like and that's that is very important in the show so the jock or the bully or the the cool girl the mean girl that we try and find ways into those characters that will surprise you and subvert the expectation and but it doesn't just apply to those sort of main characters It, it tends to apply across the across the piece to the characters in general and to the show in general finding ways of subverting your expectation of the way a world like this might operate and i think that has a certain partly intentional power in the contemporary world where people are working out what it means to be in relationship in a way that is does feel very contemporary and no one knows what they're doing and you know it's quite an exciting time to work out what <laughs> what the sort of what relationships are and what the rules are and We're doing a lot of that at the moment, and the the show does that in a quite unapologetic way. Those sorts of conversations have been very, very prevalent. The conversation about education is a bit more of an unintentional one, but one that we are aware of, obviously, because a lot of people report that they, as parents, watch it at the same time as their kids, but in different rooms, um, (laughs) and then that that is quite beneficial. And I, I realized that there was something odd about the response to the show on the sort of, the day after the first season had gone out and um, our daughter, who was five then, had a babysitter who said, who was 19, who said, looking forward to going back and watching the show. And I said, fantastic, can't wait to hear what you think of it, because you're you're the really, the kind of target demographic. Give me a call tomorrow and let me know what you think. And so she called me the next day and said, well, I I got home at whatever time, 11.30, and my mum, who was, she was in the living room and, and watching the show. She's in her late 50s. I didn't feel able to watch it with her, and she said I hadn't told my mum about it. She just found it and was just watching it. So she obviously found that excruciating. Went to bed and then got up the next day, and she said I came down and my mum had been up until four in the morning watching the show. I said, "Are you sure that? Are you sure it was harsh? Are you sure it wasn't The Crown?" no, no, it was, um, it was definitely sex education. And that's quite, that's, that's weird. That, that was definitely weird. It said something about what the audience might respond to. Sex education has performed very well across different demographics and different age groups. And I think that's partly because there is a very obvious reason for a younger demographic to like it, but then the older demographic has a sort of nostalgic take on it as well. And a lot of people have said, you know, I wish That I had a show like that when I was that age, because it would have informed the way that I approach relationships, and it would have given me confidence as well to say things that otherwise, that I didn't at the time, that I would have handled potentially in a different way. That's quite an
1: inspiring thing to hear, really. The show is on Netflix, and I'm sure most of the producers in this room will be either working with or be wanting to work with Netflix. How does it differ from working with a UK broadcaster? Well, they would consider themselves a UK broadcaster as well in that sense. It's only
0: really in the last year that they've had a a really solid UK drama staff. That's certainly a very, very strong presence now. They differ. This is quite a fundamental thing that's happened in the last five or so years, driven a lot by Netflix, which is that the traditional way of developing an idea, which is the way that we actually develop sex education, which was initially with a linear broadcaster in the UK. You go to the commissioner... You tell them the idea, you might have brought a sort of outline and then hopefully they'll buy a script, the writer will write the script, that might take a year to get the first episode to a point where everyone is able to make a decision on it. The decision then might take six months to a year. That's quite a long process and it means that the linear broadcasters tend to act and behave in a certain way. They know that there's a certain rhythm to that which is quite predictable and they have quite a lot of control in that process and it has its own merits as well. The process with Netflix is quite disruptive, disruptively different from that because they made it clear early on to all of their suppliers they would tend to consider ideas only when there was a script and possibly with talent attached as well. That is a massive difference both for them and for the producer because, of course, for them they're able to make high-level decisions uh, on a very different timescale. You can see much more clearly what the show is going to be when you've got a script and you know what talent is going to be attached. It's also very provocative to producers because actually making a commissioning decision yourself on a script and saying I'm going, to, I'm going to trust this project and invest in this project enough that I'm going to pay for the script and back it in that sense and then try and attach talent is quite a scary thing to do and you can only do that with ideas that you feel very very strongly about. At the sort of early part of the process that is a major difference between the, the SVODs as they're known like Netflix or Amazon or Apple who demand scripts brought to them and the linear broadcasters who are much more comfortable working with ideas at the very earliest point. The process after that is also, in my experience, quite different, just because if you're working, I mean, it it depends, because Netflix both co-produces shows where there might be, so they might do a co-production between the BBC and Netflix, and they also make global originals, as everyone knows. My experience with the global original team mostly, when a show is fully cash flowed, fully financed, and there's only one editorial voice coming from the broadcaster, that's an enormous benefit, if the voice is good. If the voice isn't good, then, it's, then you know, it has its own complications. The editorial input from Netflix has always been at, at the highest level, in my experience, and that's a very fluid and dynamic conversation. It sounds like I'm basically a sort of, you know, Netflix, you know, that I'm paid by them. I am paid by them. But, I, <laughs> but,
1: but I, if you know what I mean. They've been great. I suppose the, you know, the success of the show and the, the speed of the success of the show is something that wouldn't really have been possible before Netflix had happened. The idea that everyone around the world can be watching it, it at the same time and it can so take over the, you know, that conversation internationally. What is that like? It's quite overwhelming in a good way. But
0: it's, it's quite overwhelming because it goes out everywhere at the same time. Everyone reacts to it at the same time. And in the case of Sex Education, there was a very, very positive reaction from many of the territories that it went out in. And it wasn't just that the numbers were very high, but there was also a sort of strange cultural response that people felt strongly about the show and felt that it had a kind of cultural meaning that took us a bit by surprise. There was a real sort of benefit for us in the process of setting up season two, which was that the writers room for season two happened and most of the scripts were actually written and delivered before season one went out. We weren't responding to the reaction in season two. We will respond to the reaction in season three, but it's, that's, it's a bit of a delayed reaction, if you see what I mean.
1: Yeah, and, and how do you ha- handle those kind of expectations and that relationship with the audience? There are now a lot of people out there who have quite a strong opinion on your show and your characters and feel attached to your characters and maybe want them to go in different directions to the ones the directions that you want them to go in or that Laurie wants them to go in. How do you manage that? I think it's really difficult to.
0: One thing that is true is that what the audience wants, subverting what the audience wants is often quite a satisfying thing to do because it's often the most dramatic thing to do. And certainly I know a lot of people threw their shoes at the TV at the end of the last episode of season two. And that's great from our point of view. A lot of people want Otis and Maeve to get together, for example, and... Not doing that is quite fun. <laughs> so, I don't, I don't think you can manage an audience's. You've really got to just make the best show that you can for the most part and not, resp- in my view, only respond to what an audience says that it wants necessarily. And actually, that's been. That, going to your question about what it's like working for Netflix, that is one of the very, very sort of advantageous things of working for them where there's so much research on what the audience watches. I think a lot of people think that the way that Netflix operates is they say, okay, we want a high school show, so we'll get these people to make a high school show and needs to give the appearances if it's set in America. So we're going to tell them to do that. And then we need to have an internationally recognized star. So we'll get Gillian Anderson and Ace Butterfield. All the sort of concoction comes together according to an algorithm and then it'll be nice. It actually doesn't work anything like that, from my point of view anyway. You come up with an idea, you go and pitch it to them and if they like it and they feel that it can fit on the service, they will say, okay, we'll make this in the most authorially pure way that you can and in the way that's most exciting to you and most creatively fulfilling, <laughs> within limits. And then when you deliver the show, then all the research that they have at their disposal comes into its own because what they do in the first sort of month that the, that the show goes out, they will direct it quite specifically at people that they think, on a, on a sort of broad level, might enjoy the show. And if you're one of those people, then it will pop up on your homepage. So then during that month, they're doing the critical research and very sort of deep level research. At the end of that month, or so whatever period that is, they know very, very exactly the precise audience that will consume the show. And then after that month, they will direct the show at that very specific audience. And that audience is not going to be sort of restricted to a certain demographic. It's just anyone that, according to their research, will probably like the show. Producer, that's a great way to be in touch with an audience because I never expected a woman in her late 50s to be up until 4 in the morning watching the show two days after it came out. And it turns out that it was directed at her account because she might be interested in it and it turned out that she liked it. I think on the whole that, that process is a, really, is, a, is a really good and dynamic one for, for the producers of the shows.
1: One of the pitfalls of making a show with a that's set in a school with a young cast is that it has a natural lifespan. You know, when you think about shows like Saved by the Bell, where the, that ran while the cast were probably getting towards their thirties but still pretending to be in high school. Do you do you have a an idea of the number of seasons you think that the show has got in it? Is it mapped out? Well, I think that's one of the
0: the funny things about the genre. If you like. Luke Perry in 90210 is like 50 when he leaves. Yeah. So I don't think we're we're particularly prejudiced in terms of people's age, how old they actually might be. Most of the actors are well above the age of 17 in any case. And when we first pitched the show, we had an idea that it would be six seasons and each season would be a term of sixth form. So six terms, six seasons. And yeah, that's quite a nice idea. (laughs) (laughs) LAUGHTER
1: Just finally, I just wanted to touch about your creative journey from making the series and also through setting up and running Eleven Film. You know, what, what have you learned from making this show and how are you feeding that into your next projects? We've been quite a small company for many years and
0: the things that interest us are ideas that do provoke you into thinking about the world a bit differently. One of the great things that's happening at the moment in the industry more generally is that Broadcasters that previously would be quite conservative are looking to take what they describe always as a big swing. There's such a proliferation of broadcasters. To stand out, you've got to do stuff that's a bit different which is obviously annoying for the broadcasters that have always said they wanted to be a bit different. And now everyone wants to be a bit different. And ironically, if you look at Channel 4, Channel 4 is much less different than it was certainly when it was set up or even 10, 15 years ago. That is a factor, I think, of the reality that everyone wants to do stuff that feels a bit different. But for us as a company, that's a great thing because most of the shows on our slate, they're either in their form or in conceit or the concept, they are trying to yeah, be a bit challenging or stand out in the TV schedules relative to other shows. So it's quite an exciting time for us.
1: Well, thank you, Jamie. That was fantastic. Can we have a round of applause? <laughs> please.
0: Listen out for more podcasts in the Turn On Tune In series.